I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We'll be starting there, uh, starting the lesson in just a moment in Luke chapter 10. <clears throat> it's good to see everyone out this morning. Uh, I'll just start by saying that uh, my voice is a little bit rough this morning. I'm a little bit hoarse. We, uh, I don't know if I fully recovered the, just a couple of nights ago on Friday night. We went to Miss uh, Susan Ramsey's house and uh, she hosted a singing for uh, as many members as could come. And we had a good time. We sang for really not about, but I'm pretty sure two hours. Um, and so at about nine o'clock, we, we uh, ended that. But um, I thought maybe, I don't know, maybe we are going to go till midnight tonight. But uh, it was a really good time with with uh, many of you there uh, I think it just is encouraging to be a part of that I think it's encouraging to get together as much as possible just beyond the confines of this room uh, it's it's good to be able to build uh, up one another in that way especially in worship to God and so that was a good time all that just to say I do think I'm a little bit hoarse but I'm pretty sure I should be able to get through uh, both of the lessons uh, both uh, this morning and tonight um, if you've been with us just for the past couple of weeks, what we've been doing is going through a series on authority, and particularly the last couple of weeks, we've been focusing especially on the idea of how do we establish authority? How, how exactly are we supposed to, first of all, interpret it and then establish it? Um, I, I really do believe that establishing authority or how to do so is a simpler task than people often give it credit for. Uh, you know, you have a lot of people who will look at the Bible and they say, well, how, how can we really understand God's will? Well, we looked at that specifically, and we came to a pretty good conclusion. We absolutely can understand God's will. He expects for us to. He tells us to understand it. But then we just looked at I, I, what I was trying to do is get just even more fundamental, even more simple in how we do that. We communicate by telling people things, showing people how to do things, and implying certain things. Now, we've already looked at what God tells us to do, the direct statements and commands that he gives us. Then we looked at examples and how we often learn by examples and how God expects us to do the same with his word. Um, and now we get to what I think is maybe the most fundamental part, which is the necessary inferences that we sometimes talk about or refer to. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is asked a, a, maybe a simple question or a difficult question. Uh, either way, I think the answer that he gives back just from the very beginning of that question, he answers with a question which we'll look at in just a moment. But I think from the very beginning, he just makes the point that it's as simple as reading the scriptures. You want to know how to establish authority. You want to know, you want to know uh, how to please God. What does it say? And then we go to that, we go to those scriptures, we go to God's word, and that's how we figure these things out. And so uh, this morning what I want to tr just look at is just very simply the necessary inferences that we make as we go throughout the scriptures, uh, you know, looking at the implications that we find and how we use those implications or how we use uh, the, those um, those subtle maybe details and maybe even more than that very descriptive details that helps us understand what we are to do how we are to please God so beginning in the text of Luke chapter 10 Luke chapter 10 beginning in verse 25 it says a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life and he said to him what is written in the law how does it read to you and he answered, You shall love your, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. 
and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. We're actually going to come back to Luke chapter 10 uh, later on in the lesson. So you may just put a marker there or something there to uh, get back to it quickly. But uh, I just wanted to look at these few verses as we begin the lesson, looking at necessary inferences. What I've been trying to do is just especially using the example of Jesus. How does he communicate to people? How does he try to communicate authority to people? And here's an instance among several instances where Jesus himself is using implications to teach something. Now, first of all, how does he answer the question that the lawyer gives to him? Uh, Teacher, what should I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the first thing Jesus says? Well, he he gives a question that I think is, is has much impact when you actually sit and think about it. He says, "What is written in the law?" That's the first question. Two, how does it read to you? Now, I will just say before we move on, I don't think Jesus is is Jesus is, is never indicates whatsoever through whether it be a direct statement, example, or implication. He never indicates ever throughout the scriptures that people get to interpret however they want to interpret the law, however they want to interpret the word. In fact, there's a lot of instances where Jesus very, very strictly and, and um, directly opposes certain people who want to interpret the law however they want to, especially with the scribes and the Pharisees. And we've looked at that uh, a few times just in the past couple of months, how often and how um, harsh the language sometimes get because of how severe the issue is, how they corrupt the law and how they corrupt what God has given them. And so it's it's certainly not that Jesus is saying, well, how do you read it? That's really all that matters. No, what he's saying is, look at the law. What do you think it says? <laughs> and, and I think maybe, maybe it kind of carries that tone. Uh, not necessarily, well, why don't, you tell me what, why don't you tell me what you want it to say? No, it's kind of like a parent who's talking to their child. What do you think it says? And usually they add on a descriptor word after that to indicate the, <laughs> the mental inferiority in the moment of, of the child. And so I don't, I don't think it's very confusing, even from the beginning, uh, this answer that Jesus is giving to the lawyer as he says, how does it read to you? Implying something that he already knows. Uh, in fact, he goes on after he's asked that question by Jesus, and he says, well, he gives the greatest commandments, as we, as we often call them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and, and your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what does Jesus say to that? After he has given this answer, he doesn't say, oh, no, still don't get it. No, he says, correct. He says, you, you said it. You do know it. So all the while, what you find is Jesus asking a question, implying that you already know the answer. And then he goes further after the man has inferred, after he has discerned what Jesus has been trying, to, what Jesus uh, didn't outrightly say, didn't just directly state, but he implied something and it's clear he understood. And Jesus says, that's true. That is correct. You've got it right. Now, apply it. And that's the expectation that's given uh, whenever God gives, uh, whenever God is trying to communicate to us his authority, whenever he's trying to communicate to us how he wants us to act and what he wants us to do. Now, uh, specifically as you look at these commandments, again, as we often refer to them as the greatest commandments, and we refer to them like that because several times what we find is this was apparently commonly discerned or inferred by many people you go over to just a passage like matthew chapter 22 and verse 34 where he says but when the or where it says when the pharisees heard that jesus had silenced the sadducees they gathered themselves together one of them a lawyer asked him a question testing him teacher which is the greatest commandment in the law and jesus said to him you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and foremost commandment the second is like it 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So there's a lot within that. You go over to uh, another passage like Mark. Mark chapter 12, very quickly, beginning in verse 28. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And he says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So here Jesus is the one that gives the answer. And the scribe is saying, absolutely, yep, that's it. Can't say anything against that. Now what does Jesus say in verse 34? It says he, or it says he saw that he had answered intelligently. He said to him, the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Now, why does he say that? Because the scribe, as is often the case with the scribes and the Pharisees, they did corrupt the law often, and they did corrupt what God had given them often. And here, he just, he just agrees with what Jesus has just said, which really, he's just quoted the law. And so really, you can't do much other than that. You have to agree with that. And so the scribe agrees with that, and Jesus says, hey, if you agree with that, you're probably really close to the kingdom. You're probably really close to being in a right relationship with God, which I think <laughs> implies much uh, just, just in his uh, interaction with the scribe there. And so I, I go through just a couple of these examples to make the case that this is not like this is some random uh, you know, enlightenment that Jesus had while, during his ministry. No, this is something that was commonly understood throughout the rest of the Jews uh, to the point where they could ask that question and that is the same response that you would get from everyone. Now, I want to just ask, how did they come to this conclusion? As you look uh, back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, those are the two passages that are being cited, that are being quoted as you look at the greatest commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 sounds a lot like what we read in Mark chapter 12. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then he goes on uh, uh, even further than that to talk about just how serious he is when he says these words need to really be on your heart. You need to be thinking about them. They need to be on your lips when you go by the wayside, when you're, when you're going to bed, when you wake up. They need to never depart from your mouth. They need to never depart from your mind. Um, and so I wanted to just give a little bit of the context because <clears throat> when you see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it does not say within this passage or I think throughout the rest of the Old Testament that this is the greatest commandment. It doesn't outright say that. It doesn't directly state that. You go over to the second greatest commandment in Leviticus chapter 19, what's being quoted there in verse 17. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. And then, in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, even if you go and read all of the, all of the verses before that and all of the verses afterward, you're not going to see anywhere in the law where it states, and this is the second greatest commandment. Now, does that take away from what Jesus has said? No. God manifested in the flesh said, this is the greatest commandment. But I go through all that just to say, as he says in Matthew 22, on these depend the law and the prophets. 
even though it's never directly stated. And so what you find just in Jesus' example is the fact that you can, uh, that there are implications that are made by God's commandments or that are made by God's uh, examples or just from throughout his law, throughout his revelation that we see, where we infer something that is absolutely binding, that is absolutely authoritative. Now, I want to just continue... uh, We'll come back to this question. We'll come back to this question at the end. But I just want to ask, as we think about that, if 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 you were in one of the, you know, the scribe's shoes or the lawyer's shoes, would you be able to answer the same way? Would you have been able to come to that conclusion, just having read through the Old Testament? The indication is, the authoritative indication is, you should have. Now, moving on from that, when it comes to Coming to these conclusions, uh, or when it comes down to coming to these conclusions, uh, the things that God wants us to know, I think that there are a few things that uh, we have to have placed in our minds before we can continue that conversation. First, I just want to define our terms, what we mean by an implication, what we mean by a necessary inference. First of all, what we find is that to imply something, and this is just the Google uh, uh, definition, but it says to communicate something without expressly stating it. And then you have, uh, or, or sorry, uh, this is, on the screen, it's not the Google definition. This is the Luke translation. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But the Google uh, uh, definition was str- to strongly suggest the truth or existence of something not expressly stated. And so what you have on the screen is just a, a more brief version of that. To communicate something without stating it. Well, what, is, what does it mean to infer something? What is an inference? To infer something means to deduce or conclude information from evidence and reasoning rather than from explicit statements. So what does that mean? Well, if someone implies something, they're trying to communicate something to you without directly stating it. And if you infer it, that just means you got it. <laughs> okay? That just means you understand what they were trying to communicate. Very simply. All right, so we've defined our terms. Why is that important? Well, I think when you just, when you boil things down, it helps us understand it's really not as complicated as people like to act. And I'll just say, when it comes to inferences, this is something that still is, is very much uh, opposed, that's very much attacked when it comes to how do we learn what God wants us to do? Um, it's opposed just at, you know, at its face. It's just, well, you can't bind any inference because how are we to know? But then you go even further and some people will basically come to a random conclusion that God did not mean for us to come to. So what are a few things that can help us in trying to figure out the conclusions that God wants us to come to? Well, uh, first and foremost, before we even get to that, I just want to make the case that implications, no matter what, do tend to be binding. Even within our own relationships, we bind our implication on others all the time. Um, If you're married, you get that. If you're married, you understand that there are a lot of implications that your spouse makes that, oh boy, if you don't understand, you're going to get an earful. Um, So someone says, this is actually an example that's in the article by Brother Dorm Moyer. I think he does a really good job of, of explaining this. Uh, that's why you've seen a couple of his articles already just in the past few weeks. But especially as he talks about an inference, he used the example of, okay, some, so let's say uh, Paige comes to me and says, man, I really wish that that garage would get cleaned out at some point this week. Now, there are only two people in this house. One of them is the person who just said that comment. And the other is the one that's going to play dumb and act like he doesn't understand. Now, is it clear what she's trying to communicate? Of course it is. 
We do this all the time. Now, it, what, if I infer what she's trying to communicate, that means, I guess, that means me. Me is the person who needs to clean this garage out because it certainly doesn't mean her. <laughs> so, so it does tend to be more simple than we sometimes give credit for. You think about just a parent and child interaction. When, when uh, you know, maybe a child is acting somewhat rambunctious, a lot of times, well, uh, you especially see this, you, you see this less and less in the world, but especially with brethren, a lot of times what you find is that uh, the parent, whether it be the mom or the dad, they can just give a look and the child, oh, okay, I think it means to stop. Maybe stop running. Or I think maybe this means maybe I need to be a little bit quieter. All it took when, when I was growing up was a glare from my mom or dad. Now, I don't know if my dad would say otherwise, but generally, once we got that very scolding glare from across the room, we knew that means it's time to settle. Because if we don't settle, then something is going to happen when we get in the car or when we get home, disciplinary-wise. So... You could have just an implication by a father or a mother just simply warning someone. You know, it, 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 it's, so, it's so fundamental that when you wink at someone, you're implying something. Now, a wink can imply a lot of things, especially today. But you're implying something. There was even a, there was a game that we used to play growing up. It was called Kemp's. I don't know if you've ever played it. But basically, you have a, a, a teammate. It's just you and, and your teammate against another two people. And, and basically, you give each other a sign where once you have the right cards... You give that sign, whatever it is, whether it be a wink or whether it just be a certain gesture, you stretch or something, and then they say Kemp's, and then you get it. Now, a part of that game is if you infer incorrectly, if you get the wrong, uh, if you get confused and you actually take the wrong sign and they don't have the cards, well, you lose a point. All of that just to say, we use implications and we infer things all of the time. And it doesn't just have to be when it comes to authority, matters of authority. It can be something as, as simple and as entertaining as a game. So I think it's very silly when people come up to us and say things like, well, how could you bind something uh, that you find in a text on everyone else? Well, because implications tend to be very seriously taken in human history and in human interaction. You especially see this uh, even with God. God binds us in the same way with his own implications, just like we do with others. Um, you, see in, uh, you see this just in Luke chapter 10, as we were just looking at, but over in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10, just a couple of verses here. In verse 15, God is, being, or, uh, God is showing Peter a vision uh, of all of these animals. And we, and we talked about this a few weeks ago. But in verse 15, it says, A voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And during that vision, Peter had seen all these animals, and it, it, the command was given, Eat. And he said, Well, nothing unclean or unholy is ever, you know, I, have I ever eaten. But God says in verse 15, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Well, Peter kind of deals with that he's trying to mull that over in his brain for a while but then you get to towards the end of the story or, or beginning towards the end of the story in verse 28 after he has uh, come to Cornelius's household and he is speaking with him and speaking about the vision that, that Cornelius had had uh, or had seen in verse 28 Peter says you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Now, did God say those words exactly? I should not, that you should not call any man. That he didn't verbalize humans. 
He was using that vision of the animals to make this point. In verse 29, that is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I ask for what reason you have sent for me. And, and what we find is that he, teaches the, he preaches the gospel and those men, Gentiles, are saved. Now what was the point that God was trying to make with the vision? It was really about the animals. It was really about the food. Was it about the food? No, that's not the main point. The main point was, guess what? The Gentiles are now to be included in this kingdom. Even the Gentiles, just like the Jews, are supposed to be born into Christ. They can be born into Christ and become heirs of the promise, heirs of Abraham. That's the point that God is making there. And so, uh, and you could look at several other passages where you see something implied by God uh, all throughout from the Old Testament to the New Testament. There's just one example. And again, I would just refer back to Luke chapter 10, what we started with, Jesus doing that with the lawyer. But beyond that, not only do we bind uh, our implications with others, does God bind implications on us? Um, also, I don't think that these implications have to be fully drawn out. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not saying that, we again, we just go to any interpretation that we want. What I'm saying is... We don't even have this expectation when we're communicating with people. That when someone implies, when someone winks at us, uh, a lot of the time we understand, especially with the context, we understand what's being, you know, we understand what the sign is about. But very rarely does someone say, what exactly is that that you're doing with your eyelid? And what exactly are you trying to get across? Now, sometimes maybe that has happened, but I think that's because humans tend to imply things very vaguely. Um, now, with God, that's just simply not so. He's very clear when it comes to the implication, implications he makes. So something does not have to be completely drawn out to be binding. What's an example? Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever disbelieves will not be saved. Or shall not inherit eternal life. That's pretty clear. It's a pretty clear statement. Now, it's not necessarily a command. It's just a statement that Jesus makes. And what's expected is you are to infer, infer that this is a part of how to become a part of God's kingdom. And we've already kind of mentioned that last week, I believe, uh, as we were talking about examples. But you understand, Jesus does not have to go through every single detail of what that looks like. He uses the words that we understand like baptism, and they would use that word as it, it, it always meant immersion. You would be immersed into water. Uh, that debate didn't come up until men started trying to suggest that, you know, several centuries later, that suggests that, well, it could mean something other than immersion. But he used the word that it meant to immerse someone into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that they can raise in the newness of life in Christ. And he doesn't have to go through this great dissertation of what exactly that's going to look like. We can infer what we need to do. You look at specifically uh, another passage in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're not going to look at the entire passage, but here is that passage of the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip is sent to him. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah. They have that wonderful conversation uh, of, of what, uh, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how can I understand unless someone interpret, or interprets it for me? And so Philip preaches to him the gospel, and as he's preaching the gospel to him, the eunuch answered Philip and said in verse 34, Please tell me of whom, uh, or excuse, I already kind of went through this. Please tell me of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water while he's, well, the gospel is being preached to him. And he says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And ultimately, he's baptized. Now, why do I go through that? Because here is yet another example of where it's very easy to infer the conclusion here. Why would the Ethiopian eunuch bring up the body of water to be baptized in? 
well, obviously this has nothing to do with being preached the gospel, right? No, actually, the context matters. And so what we find is that while he's being taught about Jesus, while he's being taught about the way, he asks about this water where he can be baptized. And so we often come to this passage just as a case study to make the case or to make the point that baptism is a part of that plan of salvation. And it's a part of how to become a part of this kingdom. Now, I keep using baptism a lot because I think it's one of the clearest uh, portions of, of the Bible by far when it, when it comes to that. But I, I, I would just say I don't think this is unclear or vague. I just think that it tends to be unsavory or unappealing to many. It's not that it's hard to infer the correct conclusion. It's just that people do not want to. Um, and so we always come back to this idea of that, the fact that we need to be honest when we're trying to interpret the scriptures and interpret what God has for us uh, to, to be his people. Well, you go past that, and I would also just say that what we're looking for are the unavoidable conclusions, or what I usually say is the forced conclusions. And you've even heard me say this, we're looking for forced conclusions, not the conclusions that I am forcing on the text, but what is God trying to say? What is the intent of this? And so the forced conclusion or the unavoidable conclusion is what God is wanting us to get from it. You, I think we even had an example of this in the Bible class. In Philemon, Philemon chapter 1 and verse 10, as Paul talks to Philemon or, and about Onesimus, even, he, he uses that word son. Well, does this mean that he's some illegitimate child of Paul? Well, I mean, that's the way. I mean, it's, it's child. It's, it, it's translated as son. So it has to mean that. No. Why? Obviously, he's talking about in a spiritual sense. Now, how do we come to that conclusion? We infer, we discern what the Holy Spirit is revealing to us. And we did so correctly, I would say. Well, you go uh, past that. You look at a passage like Acts chapter 20, which we looked at uh, even last week when it comes to uh, how we learn by examples. But in Acts chapter 20, very quickly, it's just in verse 7. We won't read the whole passage. But in verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered together. And there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. Now what we find as you continue reading is that he is revived, he is resurrected uh, by, by a miracle, and he is able to come back. And what happens is they, that Paul just continues teaching. Now, I just wanted to go through this example again just very quickly, uh, just to kind of you know, give a recap from last week so that, so that we remember what's going on. Now, when, as we're talking about forced conclusions or unavoidable conclusions, what is the unavoidable conclusion? Well, that we must meet in an upper room. Well, no, that's not an unavoidable conclusion, as we already saw last week from several different passages that they met more in more than just an upper room. They met in schools, they met in public places, they met in houses, individual houses. And so, uh, you know, you don't find that that is the unavoidable conclusion. And why is that? Because there are several other passages that gives us more context, that gives us more information, that helps us make that proper discernment or come to that appropriate conclusion. Now, Again, what is the unavoidable conclusion? Or what is an unavoidable conclusion? As we look at the Lord's Supper, what we do find is that it was on the first day of the week. And that's just substantiated by several other examples throughout the New Testament where they partook of the Lord's Supper 
specifically on the first day of the week. And I think you even kind of see that within the context of Acts chapter 20, even after this passage, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But regardless, you see several different passages that would indicate that. And, and, And even if it's not as many passages as someone would want, it is the only indication of when uh, the New Testament Christians, the first century Christians, partook of the Lord's Supper. And so we come to an unavoidable conclusion. We come to a forced conclusion that the text is forcing, not us, that we partake on the first day of the week. Whereas the upper room, that wouldn't necessarily, necessarily be a forced conclusion. That's just something that maybe someone takes and kind of maybe just completely disregards other passages throughout the New Testament. We have to be careful that we don't do that as we are trying to infer the correct uh, uh, conclusions. Well, just with regards to this, especially as you think about the first day of the week, I don't think that that's as nearly as, as confusing as many uh, in the religious world would try to suggest. You know, sometimes you have people say, well, this is supposed to be done on the first day of the week. No one really, I don't think really anybody uh, objects to that, but maybe they object to doing it every single week. I don't know. Maybe we should just wait till you know Christmas or Easter, or maybe we should just wait to do it once a year because hey, people may get tired. People may you know just kind of lose interest in it after doing it every single week. First of all, I don't really think that the whims and sensibilities of the people matter. I think if it's something that we're expected to do, we need to just do it. But secondly, and more to the point, is this how we ever? would interpret or infer uh, uh, communication whenever it's given to us. Just for example, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, as, as God is giving the Ten Commandments to the people, He says in verse 8 beginning, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Well, one thing that we infer correctly is that that was a very special day. And that there were some pretty specific rules given to that day. Now, could somebody read from this passage and say, you know what? I think that we could probably, let's just save our time here and let's save the energy that it takes to do all this. Let's just do this, you know, for the, during the Passover. Because we're already coming together for a feast anyway. So let's just save this for the Passover. Could the Jews have understood it that way? Absolutely not. In fact, you see a couple of examples throughout the Old Testament where there were Jews, there were Israelites who didn't respect the Sabbath, and there was a penalty for that, a severe one. Because it's a commandment that God had given, and he expected, he expected them to understand it and to follow it. Uh, and so in the same way, I think we can understand pretty, pretty simply what God means by something like the first day of the week uh, to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we could just extend that to many other matters. Well, finally, with this point, as I, all, as I have tried to continually come back to, context matters. And I've even said it throughout this lesson. Um, there are several examples you could look at, but over in Luke chapter 12, very quickly. Luke chapter 12, verse 33. Luke chapter 12 and verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts, uh, make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, uh, which do not wear out, uh, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. All right. Well, we just read in Luke chapter 12 and verse 33 that we are to sell all of our possessions. So, have you done that? Well, 
again, I think that it is important to look at the context. And that's why a lot of times it's very dangerous when someone just comes to one verse or one passage and they rip it out of its context and then they do not want to look at the rest of, of, of the conversation or the rest of the passage. Well, honestly, no matter what we think, no matter what we feel, we need to obey God, whatever he's given us. So is this what Jesus is trying to indicate that every single one of us in this building needs to sell all of our possessions? Well, Let's look earlier in the story. In Luke chapter 12, in verse 13, this is while Jesus is teaching, he's really interrupted by someone. And look at the reason why he's interrupted. Someone in the crowd in verse 13 said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And just skipping down, you could read the whole passage, but just skipping down to verse 22, and he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And then he talks about some of these other, consider the ravens. Think about God, how God has supplied them. And I think a lot, all of this comes back to that context that we find in verses 13 through 14. First of all, you had this, um, you know, I don't want to call him an idiot because sometimes it's like, I feel like I'm probably that idiot. But you have this guy who is listening to words of eternal life from the good teacher, from God manifested in the flesh, and he interrupts that man and he says, Please, just give, make, make my brother give me this inheritance. Make my brother give me this stuff that I want. Does it sound like he even cares about the things that Jesus is talking about? No. He's just focused on his, you know, me and mine. That's what I want. And that's all that I care about. And that's all I'm going to consider. And how does Jesus respond? Well, listen, maybe you need to sell everything you have. Because it sounds like you are too focused on those things. And so maybe the application for, for some would be, maybe I do need to sell everything because I'm far too invested and distracted by those idols. Here's a man who has made those possessions. Here's a man that has made that money his idol, and he's not focused on God. And so Jesus says, listen, you need to go ahead and sell what you have, and you need to follow me, and then you can have treasures in heaven. You're so focused on treasures, have one that's unfailing. And I think that that happens you know, a few times throughout the New Testament. There are some uh, verses that you could go to and you could, uh, and someone could make just some random arbitrary conclusion, come to some random arbitrary conclusion that they themselves are forcing, not God, not the text. And again, remember back in Acts chapter 20 in verses 7 through 9, we do this pretty easily. Remember how almost no one, because I have never heard anyone say, well, we must infer that the preacher needs to preach until midnight. Right? No one has ever even indicated that. And why is that? Well, for one, because, I, very simply, I don't think anybody wants to do that. But secondly, because it's clear. And it's so simple, we, we, we can read through that and understand. Of course he's not saying that you must do this every time you preach. And so let's not overcomplicate these things. And let's not let others try to overcomplicate these things. Let's just take this as it is. And let's act like this is, uh, uh, you know, Clear communication, as God has already indicated, it is. Well, finally, as we conclude the lesson this morning, I just want to ask the question again. The same question that is asked throughout the New Testament. What is the greatest commandment? Could you answer that today? As a Christian in the, in the New Testament age, what is the greatest commandment? Would you say, well, 
when that was quoted, it was, ta- it was, it was, we already read it. It was from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and it was from Leviticus chapter 19. So clearly, you know, that was part of the prophets. That was a part of the law. That's no longer the greatest commandment. Oh, really? You sure you want to go there? To love the Lord your God before everything else? That's not the greatest commandment still today? No, we can still come to that conclusion. Now, do we come to that conclusion? Uh, do we come to that conclusion because we ourselves are forcing it? Do we come to that conclusion because God directly stated it? No, but it's still very much implied as you read throughout all of these passages that we could go to about the fact that the Lord's commandments are not burdensome and the Lord's commandments are what bring eternal life and doing what he wants us to do, true, faithful obedience, that is what he wants from us. I mean, it's just clear. It's pervasive throughout. It permeates the New Testament. Now, with that being said, turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 very quickly. I would say that if we don't have this understanding even today, if we don't infer correctly on this point, well, it'll be spiritually devastating to us. Matthew chapter 19, beginning of verse 17, it says, He said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and look at what he says. He brings the greatest commandments into this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? In verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, and in Luke and Mark's accounts of this, I believe it says, There's one thing you lack. And he says, Go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. I think that's giving us even more details to help us make, come to the right conclusion. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that? Because again, here's a man whose idol is money and possessions. And he was not willing to give that up. For who? Even for God. And he, went away and he went away weeping because he knew. He got the point that Jesus was making. You want to be a part of my kingdom? Are you willing to let that go? If you're not, you can't say you love God more than all else. And I think that that is still very much implied by the New Testament today. By God himself today. That if we are not willing to put him before everything else, we too cannot. We are not fit to be a part of that kingdom. Well... I think it's further implied just coming back to our text that we started in in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, very quickly. Luke chapter 10, uh, picking up where we left off earlier in verse 29. After this moment where he has asked, well, you know, where he's gone through these greatest commandments to, to have eternal life. In verse 29 of Luke chapter 10, it says, uh, I'm in Acts. I was wondering what was going on there. Luke chapter 10, in verse 29. He said, but wishing to justify himself, that's the lawyer, he said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Uh, Solid try there. (laughs) Jesus replied and said, well, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put on, on him, uh, him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Was the lawyer, was he confused about what Jesus was trying to imply? No, not at all. He understood. And that's why Jesus said, if that's the case, do it. And I think there's even another implication within this parable that Jesus gives uh, by using a Samaritan, one of the people that the, that the Jews just absolutely despised at this point. I think maybe one thing he's implying is, maybe you're not even as good as you think you are. You may not even be as good as the Samaritans. And but, but that's a side point. Regardless, you just see this point even further implied as he gives this parable and the lawyer comes to the right conclusion how is it? Because it wasn't that complicated. God gives us these parables. He gives us his revealed word. He gives us his direct, clear word so that way we can understand what he wants for us to do. And I hope that I've made that point clearly as I've said it. Probably I've, I've beaten a dead horse at this point. But I would just finally ask with that. Jesus says, go and do the same. How should this be inferred even today? I think that there are several applications to this. Love your neighbor as yourself? Well, why don't you start a list of what that would look like? Well, you're going to need more than one page because there's a lot of different circumstances, a lot of dis different situations that we could treat our, uh, our, our, treat our neighbor as ourself, love our neighbor as ourself. One final passage in this, Matthew chapter 25. How important is this even today? Matthew chapter 25. Why is it important to even love our neighbor as ourselves. Beginning in verse, uh, in Matthew chapter 25, in verse 41. Verse 41 of Matthew chapter 25. A parable, in, in, in my Bible, the heading of this, this whole section is the judgment. So I think that there's great, <coughs> serious context of what we're reading here. But in verse 41 of Matthew chapter 25, he says, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or, or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Verse 45, then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. How serious is this? It's so serious that if you're not a part of that kingdom, if you don't do this, if you don't apply this honestly in your own life, you'll be guilty of the same thing that he says these were guilty of. And you as well will have to stand before a God and say and, and understand that I did not take care of you when you were. And, and, and I think that that's one of the be most beautiful parts of the fellowship that is shared between New Testament Christians. You especially see this in Paul's epistles as he's in prison, as he is talking about the love he has for these Christians. One of those things, one, a part of that fellowship is they are, do, they are fulfilling this. 
when he was in need, when he was in prison, when he was sick, they took care of him. And how confident can they be in doing that when they stand before God and they have to give an account for all the things that they did? They, they get to look at that and say, I, 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 I tried in every circumstance, I tried as hard as I could to do that for you. And I think in that case, we would look favorably if we uh, took it as seriously as maybe they did, took it as seriously as God still intends for us to take it today. Well, as I've already indicated earlier, I think human implications can often be passive and vague. And so maybe that's why there are so many arguments against uh, how maybe we shouldn't bind people on implications. I'll just say, however, on the other hand, God's implications are never passive or vague. They are clear and loud and direct. And there's really not any room for someone to say, oh, oh we couldn't understand. No, you could. You could. No matter who rejects God's word, no one will be able to say it's because they didn't understand. Rather, if we've turned our backs on God, if we've turned our backs on his revelation, we will have to stand before him in judgment with the truth that it just wasn't that appealing to me. And I didn't want to understand it. But I'll just say, it's not just thinking about it in such a negative way. It is a truly a beautiful thing to have the mind of God presented to us through his word. It is truly a beautiful thing that God has said, I want you to know so that you can be with me. And that's what I would like to invite you to today, just extending Christ's invitation. Are you willing, do you want to have that relationship with him, that he has not left vague of how to do that, he has not left uh, in an, uh, that he has not communicated in an indirect way of how to become a part of that kingdom? He's made it so very clear. Are you willing to become a part of that kingdom this very morning or return to him if you have gone astray? If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand. As we stand.